Jesus, I'm struck that one of the most common ways you refer to God is you call him Father. And not only that, but you invite us to call him Father too. (laughs) I say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so, Lord, all those silence and receiving is a vulnerable place to be. God, I pray that we would embrace all that you have given us. We'd open our ears to who we are. That you remind us that the most important identity that we can have is to be sons and daughters of you because only that identity is eternal. And it's the only thing that is going to last for all of time. And so, Lord, now as sons and daughters coming to to rest in you and your spirit, to celebrate you, our Father, gathering as one family here online or in person, God, we open our hearts to hear your word and what it is you want to say to us today. We love you. We praise you. We thank you that no matter what we have done, you still love us and you pursue us. So may we open our hearts to receive you. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everybody. Man, it is great to see your faces here. I wish I could see the faces of people online as well, but thank you guys for joining us. And I pray that uh, what we, uh, we're diving right back into this series today. Thank you, JJ. Called Getting Back to the Why. Getting Back to the Why. We started this whole thing off at the beginning of this year. Asking, what is the purpose for our lives, for this church, for our work? And anytime we ask this question of what is my purpose, the way we answer that question really depends on what we believe about our origin. If I believe that I am just the result of a biological accident, or I'm just the decision of my parents then really I get to decide whatever purpose I want to live, or my parents get to decide it. But if I believe, as we do, that we are a masterpiece, as Ephesians 2 talks about, made by a loving, intelligent, sovereign God, then when we go to this question of what is my purpose, then we need to go to Him and His Word to understand that. And so from week one, we were looking at God's Word saying, what is your purpose for my life? Week two, what is your purpose for your church? Week three, what is your purpose for our jobs or our work? And to be fair, um, I feel like every message in this series deserves a series in its own. Two weeks ago, Pastor David talked about work, and I wanted him to go on for two more hours. But uh, we're we're trying to condense all this in. Well, today is going to feel somewhat similar. And we're addressing the question of what is God's ultimate why, his purpose for our families. And so I'm going to do my best to condense this down to 30 minutes and pack as much stuff in here as I can. So please lean in with me as as we cover this. But let me just say from the get-go, to get you thinking, throw this question out there. And you can consider your family of origin or you can consider your family right now whatever you consider your family right now, what is the highest purpose either for your family growing up or your family right now? To ask that question a different way, what 
are the main motivators that guide the decision-making within your family. And now as I say this, let me just say from the get-go, no family is the same. Right? Families come in all shapes and sizes. Some families have two parents. Some families have one parent. Some families have extended family functioning as parents. Some families have kids. Some families don't have kids. Some kids come into homes through birth, adoption, foster care, or just love. Right? There's a bunch of different ways that families are shaped. But no matter the makeup of your home, what intentionally or unintentionally guides the decision-making, the lifestyle of your family? So you got that question in your mind for a second? Turn it around, thinking of your own context. Now to try to help us think about this a little bit better, um, I was reading this book called uh, Belonging and Becoming by Mark and Lisa Scandrett. Uh, I totally recommend it if you want to think about this more deeply. But in this book, they lay out several potential purposes for our families. And as I go through this list, it looks a little wonky on the screen, but I think you can still get the, the sense of it. As I go through this list, I want you to see if anything in particular stands out or connects with you or your family. So they said, according to the Scandress, they said a lot, some families live mainly driven by achievement. They want to attain some external measures of success. Other families, though, will try to go number three. They'll try to live for some moral standards of, of external behavior. They, they really live to try to make sure their family lives up to some sense of morality. Or, in an unpredictable world, many parents live for number two. Making sure that they provide for their kids a place of safety and security. While other families, you probably know who they are, man, forget security, we're going to have fun. We're going to live it up. We're going to have the good life. We only live once. Other families make sure that they nurture their kids' individuality, self-expression, confidence. And so they give a lot of leeway to the kids to do whatever they want to do. And they focus a lot on building confidence. Other families, their big thing is intimacy. They want to build a place of connection, belonging, so they're consistently together and trying to foster that kind of sense of belonging. And the last two, is some families uh, make a point to live for a mission or a purpose greater than themselves. While other families, they're in crisis mode and they're just focused on survival most of the time. So as you read through that list... Are there one, two, maybe three that stand out to you and your family today or your family of origin? Think about that. Now, I'm not giving you, oh, thank you in the back. I'm not giving you this list so that I can set you up and tell you why it's all wrong. All right? Because truth is, every one of these purposes carry some picture of who God is, but none of these purposes are complete in and of themselves. So they get a picture of it, but they can't be everything. So what you're telling me, Kirk, that, that now I have to, as a family, think about how to live out all of those things? That's absolutely overwhelming. And it is. And trust me, I as a parent consistently know that feeling that I'm never fully measuring up that I'm never doing everything right, that there's always more that I could be doing. And so I'm not giving you this list to overwhelm you. What I want us to do now is to take that list and just put it on the shelf for a moment 
And now we're going to go to God's word and we're going to go to the one who said, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. We're going to come look at Jesus, come look at his word, and then see, okay, what does that mean? How can I represent who you are in the midst of my family? Because if you get nothing else from today, I'm going to put a lot out there, but if you get nothing else from today, at least get this. The best gift that you and I can give to our families is for them to see Christ in us. The best gift. But before we dive into God's word, will you pray with me? Just pray after me and say, God, open my heart, open my mind, change my life, and do a mighty work in my family. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I know that while the topic of family is very relevant, it's also quite touchy. I don't know of any other subject other than family that can carry such extreme, intense emotions on both ends of the spectrum. For some reason, unlike our, our, our relationships at church, work, our friend relationships, nowhere like family can we experience the tangible love of God and the damage of sin. Can I get an amen from anybody on this? In our day, for whatever reason, man, family carries such a sensitivity, sensitivity to it. We can look back on our childhood and see all the fond memories. But we can also look back on our childhood and experience and feel again the painful ones. Families have shaped us for good, sometimes great good. But they're also why we're in counseling. Right? I mean, why is it that families can be so formative for good, but also can create such heartache at the same time? Well, I feel like the Bible lays out the answer to that question more than any other narrative in this world that I've seen. And I want to look at not only what the beautiful picture the Bible gives us for families, but also why it is that families can be such bro broken places. So, but first, let's look at the beautiful picture. As far as what God designed for families. Because to start, family is foundational to God's original design for humanity in his good world. After God spoke the world into existence, he created man and woman in his own image. And we've been talking throughout this whole series how to be made in God's image means that like the moon reflects the light of the sun, that we, each of us, were created to reflect the, the, the creative love and, and wisdom and character of our God. That's who we are. But after filling the first man and woman with life, God then gives them another task as his image bearers. And he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with more image bearers. In other words, have babies, form families. And then as one generation images who God is to the next, that generation does it for the next until finally the earth is full of the glory and the beauty of our God through his image bearers. Does that make sense? That makes sense. See, ultimately, family isn't just a result of biological happenstance. It's not just evolution's way of making sure that human beings can survive. No, in his creative love, God made families to, number one, be a place of belonging. Where we get a tangible picture of what God's love, care, 
protection, provision is like. But families were also created to be a place of becoming. Where we are, being, we are growing up to be the men and the women to image our God as he designed us to be. The God from the beginning made families to be a place of belonging but also becoming. Now that's the beautiful picture. But the Bible also holds nothing back in showing how messed up family relationships can be. I don't know. I know that all of us have a variety of different kinds of family issues and problems. But I doubt that any of us could throw our family issues and problems at the Bible and shock it. When you look at the Bible from the very beginning, the moment that man and woman sinned or rebelled against their creator and their father, you see that one of the first things to break were the family relationships. One of the earliest family stories, Cain killed his brother Abel. As the Bible continues, Jacob steals inheritance from his brother Esau. Go on. Tamar, David's daughter, was raped by her own half-brother. His son Absalom tried to form a coup against his dad's kingdom. Like I said, the Bible doesn't try to hide how broken families can be. And if we take any of our family issues and throw them up against the Bible, I guarantee we will not shock it. Because the Bible's clear, once human beings turned away from our God and walked our own way, that that automatically infected the human heart with sin. And as a result, the families begin to break down. Family members are neglected, abused, debased. Family members are cut off in bitterness. And we see the way that sin has crept in and affected the family. But there's also another way that sin affects families. It's not just in the way that we devalue our family members, but it's also in the way that we sometimes promote our families to the place of God. The families can also become our own idols. And we feel as if I can't be happy unless my family is happy. That I can't have joy unless my family is okay. And therefore we start looking to our families to be what only God can be in our lives. And this happened in Jesus' life. You know, Jesus had his own biological mother and brothers as he's teaching in in Mark chapter 3. Come up to him and say, Jesus, stop doing what you're doing. You're acting crazy. He says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I follow my heavenly Father's will. I'm not going to allow you to stand in the place of him. Do you see that? Thus, we see what God's beautiful picture is for the family, but also how it's easily warped by sin. But before we can start talking about our own families on this earth, before we can start understanding what it means to be Mothers, fathers, grandfathers, grandmothers, uncles, aunts, all of that. Scripture says we first have to understand what it means to be a son or daughter of our heavenly father. Even when we ran away, our father stopped at nothing to bring us home. He sent his one and only spotless son 
to pay the penalty of our sin. That all who believe, he says, I'm not only forgiving you and bringing you home to me, but I'm placing my own spiritual DNA within you, his Holy Spirit. So that it may be as if you are born all over again into my family. And all of this is so that we can confidently say, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And we see in the family of God a restoration to what he originally designed. Because in the family of God, we not only belong to him, but we are also becoming like him. Scripture says in Ephesians chapter 1 that we are in God, we belong. That he has given us his Holy Spirit as a seal over us. And that the work of Jesus on our behalf is enough for us to belong to him. And it's our role to, to simply receive that. And we are called sons and daughters of God. But yet that same spirit that, 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 that seals us as those who belong to Christ is also working within us as we become like him. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 says, Be imitators of God, dearly beloved children of God. You know, it's, this past weekend, my family went to a coat store. And my son had to get a coat that looked exactly like his dad's coat. That color, make, all of that. Why? Because there's something in a child that just wants to imitate their father. And thus, Paul is saying that if we belong to God, then we are also in process of becoming like him. And we see that in that, that God comes full circle. Because now, as we're becoming like our father, we're doing what? Imaging him. Reflecting him. Getting back to the very calling and purpose for our lives from the beginning. Which begins... Only within the family of God. And it's only when we understand who we are as sons and daughters of God that we then know what it means to be family members to those on earth. So when I was a kid, I have, I have one... Let me back up. I have one sibling, a sister who's almost three years younger than me. And when we were kids, I found like this sick joy in aggravating her to the point where she would explode. For whatever reason, I just found the things that pushed her buttons, and I would keep on pushing them until finally just, blah! and sometimes she would get in trouble, and I would just, <laughs> in the background. It was wicked. It was twisted. Very twisted. Today, my sister and I thankfully have a great relationship, and she's very easygoing, and I take some credit for that. But... What I remember as a, as a kid growing up is that when I was caught purposely instigating her, what I remember my mom teaching me, and I don't know if she remembers this or not, but I certainly do. She wouldn't sit me down and say, Kirk, this is not how Pattersons behave. She wouldn't sit me down and say, you know, will you just stop doing X, Y, and Z? What I remember her teaching me over my life was, Kirk, this is not who Jesus is. This is not the way God loves. This is not the way Jesus loved. Why? Because she had to show me that before I could be a brother to my sister, I had to learn how to be a son to my father. And it all begins at that place of saying, God, show me what it means to know you. 
Because only then can I give the best gift I can possibly give to my family, which is to reflect Christ to them. And then our homes become places of belonging, but also becoming like Jesus together. So this is the why of our families. That God created places where we could model his belonging, his love, his care, his protection, but also be places of becoming, where we might be shaped to be who God has called us to be. But, but my qu- next question is, okay, if that's true, then what does that look like in our families? What can that look like in our families? And I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 6, the first four verses of Ephesians 6, and you can turn there with me to begin to unpack this. In Ephesians 6, interestingly enough, it talks about, it talks to the younger, how the younger generations are to treat the older, and how the older generations can image the Heavenly Father to the younger. All right, so we're going to look there. But first, we're going to look at how is it that the younger generations can image Christ to the older. Now, if you're somebody in here or listening online and you don't have much biological family, or you're not sure who your family is, I want to reiterate, and I can say this over and over again, that The spiritual bond that we have as family members in the family of God is stronger than any biological blood. If you're not sure how to apply this in your own family, or you don't have a family who's consistently around or active in your life, then as I talk through this, I want you to think through, okay, well, how can I image Christ to the older and younger generations in my church family? Is that fair? Fair? Okay. So first... How is it that we are to model Christ to our older generations, to our parents, grandparents, uncles, aunts? We embody Christ for our parents as we honor them out of love for Jesus. So Paul in Ephesians spends the first four chapters talking about who we are as family members of heaven. And now he's getting practical and saying, and now this is what it means and how you're to treat your earthly families. In Ephesians chapter 6, verses 1 through three. Read it with me. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Now first, what I want you to see is the fact that Paul here speaks directly to children was a bit revolutionary in the Ephesian Roman culture. In Roman world, the dad had full ownership of the kids, and kids were often treated like property. If a dad wanted to take an unwanted baby and expose it out in the cold until it died, he could. If a father wanted to sell his children to slavery, he could. He was the king over his family. He could do whatever he wants. But as Christians, we follow the one who said, let the little children come to me. Jesus dignifies children, and therefore the fact that Paul is speaking to children directly, he's acknowledging just in speaking to them that they are little image bearers too. And they have dignity in the kingdom of God and in the family of the church. And in speaking to them, he number one, we see that he tells them to obey their parents. Why? Because Parents are meant to be a reflection of who the God the Father is to us. And so we are to honor and respect them as such. But wait, Paul. My next question was, 
Well, what if my parents tell me to do something that I know is wrong or against what God told me to do? I believe this is why Paul said, obey your parents in the Lord. Which can also be translated, obey what is in line with the Lord. Now kids, don't start trying to we- like, like go all attorney on that and trying to find the fine print and weasel your way around it, right? Like it takes a lot for your parents to, to do something that says, oh, I think I'm out of that one. But I at least want to acknowledge that because we understand that there are some parents who do not love Jesus. And some parents who do not model God. And they may ask kids to do something that they know is not in line with who God is. And it is our role always to serve God, the Heavenly Father, over anybody and anything else. Be tracking with me on that. All right. But after, Paul says, even after you become adults and you leave your house... And it may not be a requirement for you to obey your parents once you come of age. Paul says, you're not done. You're still to honor your parents, your grandparents, and the older generations that come before you. This is taken right from the fifth commandment in the ten commandments. And what does it look like to honor our parents? Well, first, I just want to say I've seen in this church... Many examples, beautiful examples of ways that some of you guys have paused your careers. You've built additions onto your home. You've totally bent over backwards to care for your own parents and grandparents. And what an image of Jesus that is to them. You know what that speaks to our parents and grandparents? You belong. You belong. And while some cultures treat the elderly well, our culture is not one of those. For whatever reason, and I think I could speculate for a while, but one thing I do know is that in Western culture, we tend to assign value to a human life based on how much they contribute or accomplish or bring to society. But the problem is... Once we grow older and we've grown past our most productive years, that mentality can cause us to start to to ignore or mistreat or neglect those who have grown older. But when we as followers of Christ say, no, 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 our value does not come from our productivity. Our value comes from the fact that God loves us and we treat the older generations in line with that. That speaks a different word to our culture. It speaks a picture of who God is and displays to our parents and grandparents, you have value no matter what. But let me also say, honoring our parents does not mean that we pretend they're perfect. If we go back to that list of family values we had earlier, you don't have to put it on the screen, but just think back to it. Now let's say that your family worked really hard to provide a sense of security for you. They worked long hours to make sure you had all the money and the provision you need to make it in life. They modeled God's provision to you. But perhaps they weren't home very much. And they didn't model his presence to you. Part of honoring our parents is number one, recognizing the gifts that they did give us. 
but also recognizing areas where they fell short, not because we're trying to dishonor them, but because when we acknowledge where our own families fell short, that protects us from just reacting to them in the opposite direction. So if your family was never home, but then they provided for you, we may be tempted to react the opposite direction, and now our family is all about intimacy, all about connection, but we don't know how to set each other free to be who it is we've called to be. So honoring our parents is to, number one, thank God for the gifts he did give us through them. Number two, acknowledge where they did fall short. But number three, forgive them for it. Forgiveness doesn't mean you forget. Forgiveness doesn't even mean you have to reconcile necessarily. But forgiveness does mean that this, that pain is no longer a ball and chain on you as you are growing to become like Jesus. And then number four, we pursue a healthier direction for our family as those who stand on our parents' shoulders. Now we've got to recognize, I'm certainly recognizing with my kids, parenting is hard. It's really hard. Kids don't come with manuals. And as this world continues to change and shift at alarming rates, parents are like, what do we do? I'm just, I'm just figuring out how to keep these kids alive, and now I have to nurture them too? Parenting's hard. And so it's important that we, number one, stop and give grace to our parents. Not bad-mouthing the older generations, because we know we would have done it so much better than they would. But ultimately, we give them the benefit of the doubt. And Paul says, as a result of that, verse 3, Ephesians 6, verse 3, you will do well in life and you will thrive. And I was wondering, I said, well, well how does that work? Well, I think in, when we learn to honor, we don't react to our parents, we learn wisdom. When we learn to, to acknowledge, give the benefit of the doubt, understand, we, we learn gratitude. And we become people of grace. And families of grace are the ones that truly learn to thrive no matter how messy things get. I mean, I could camp out there for a whole sermon. I know. But let's, i got to move on. So Paul says, this is how the younger generations are, can image Christ to the older. But how can the older generations image Christ to the younger? How can we model Christ to our grandkids, our kids, our nieces, our nephews. But we embody Christ for our children and the younger generations as we equip them to be all God has made them to be. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 4. Paul says, fathers. Now, fathers, you could legitimately substitute parents right here. Because again, in the Roman world, fathers were the king. And so Paul is trying to say, speak directly to fathers because he knows how much power they have. But in our culture, we could easily substitute parents here. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. He's saying, fathers, instead of domineering over your kids, frustrating them, Pushing them beyond the limits that the development can take. He says, you are to be a stark contrast with the rest of the world as you raise your kids as your heavenly father 
raises you. That as members or representatives of the Heavenly Father to our kids, parents are to nurture who God made them to be in their own right. So as I have three kids, seven, six, and four, a fresh four-year-old. And I confess, I confess how easy it is to make parenting not about who God made my kids to be and a lot more about me. That after a long, hard day at work or going through things stressful, my mind is occupied, I want to go home and my parenting is just whatever is easiest for me in that moment. My kids, when I get like that, are often treated as obstacles to my happiness instead of a privilege to raise. I heard somebody say the other day, man, kids messed up my life. (laughs) And it's easy to see that. How we can get stuck in that rut of just seeing our kids not as a privilege, but as an obstacle. But I've noticed that that's just one way that I tend to make parenting about me sometimes. But I've also realized the ways that I view my own kids' behavior as somehow a reflection back on me. Did you know that the word parenting wasn't added to the English dictionary until 1958? It wasn't until the 50s, 60s, 70s, there's a whole idea of parenting cropped up that said, as long as you do all the right things for your kids and do all the right inputs, then you're going to get the right outputs on the other end when they grow up. Maybe it was out of the Industrial Revolution, I don't know, but there was this idea that kids were like a product and parenting was a factory and you just pop them in and as long as everything works out just fine, on the other end you'll have smiling, contributing citizens of society. But the problem with that mentality is when your kids don't grow up the way you think they should, whose fault is it? Me, the parent. And so as we're parenting our kids, there's so much pressure. We've got to do everything right. But then once they get on the other end and we realize that, oh, we didn't do everything right. All of a sudden, we're looking back and pointing the fingers at ourselves and saying, man, I failed. All these things I regret. I should have done all of these things differently. And when our kids don't behave, even early on, when our kids don't behave the way we think they should, we all of a sudden feel this, this shame over it. And when our kids don't measure up, now all of a sudden we don't measure up. I'm not a good enough parent. And therefore, we get exasperated. We lose patience. We get sarcastic. Or we just focus on trying to manage their external behavior and we're not paying attention to their hearts. But Paul says, (laughs) I find it interesting, because this is well before psychology, by the way. By about 1900 years, Paul says, bring them up. Which you could also translate, bring them up as nourish or nurture. This word is somewhat of an organic word. It could be applied to the, the way we nourish our bodies or the way that you nurture a young plant. And that we realize that kids are not really like a factory. Instead, the Word of God says they're more like a plant. And that our job as parents is to put all the seed we can of His Word, that is instruction, in front of them. 
But we also discipline them in the way of the Lord, which is to train them to walk in Jesus' way. I love the message translation rephrases this verse. Take your kids by the hand and lead them in the way of the master. And it's a beautiful picture of parents who are sowing the seed of God's word. Who are fertilizing their kids' heart with, with the love of God. Providing a place of care and protection and stability around them. And then we leave the growth up to God. Because you and I can't change a human heart, even our own kids. And that's very frustrating to me sometimes. Because I think no matter how intentional I am, I cannot guarantee how my kids, grandkids, nieces, nephews turn out. I can't. They still must choose Jesus on their own. They still must learn for themselves what it means to be a son or daughter of God. But man, they're going to step around me if they want to walk away from God. I'm going to make it really hard for them to walk away from God. As I try all I can to apprentice them in the way of Jesus. But remember, even if you do everything right as a parent, hypothetically... It's not all worth that much unless you and I are also learning to be a son or daughter of the Father for ourselves. The best gift I can still give my kids is for them to see Christ in me. There's so much more I could say. <laughs> but let me just close with this. You know, as, um, as I was thinking through these generational dynamics and trying to think about the big picture of what it is that God's called us to do. I started thinking about my own family, in particular, uh, my mom's side of the family. And let me just say, like, from the get-go, my family is not perfect by any stretch. But I, this week I picked up my great-grandmother's memoirs. She grew up in South Carolina and then moved to East Tennessee later in life. But my grandmother Libby, my great-grandmother Libby, um, or Elizabeth, loved Jesus. She came to know him when she was in college. And then she married my great-grandfather, Bud. Well, Bud was the son of a preacher. But, being the son of a preacher, he saw some hypocrisy in the church. He got a first-hand direct look at how certain preachers could say one thing and live a different way. And that led him to become pretty bitter and just say, I'm good on the whole church thing. Well, my great-grandmother Libby, even though my great-grandfather didn't have much interest in it all, she decided that she would take her six kids, the oldest of which was my grandmother, and she would still pour God's word into them. And she sowed the seeds of God's word in their heart. She brought them to church. She taught them the hymns. You know, she, did, she, she wasn't perfect, but she was faithful. And then my grandmother eventually came to own her own faith. And again, she had four kids, one of which was my mom. She, she wasn't perfect, but she was faithful. And she did all, through all kinds of, of, of trials, and I mean, I'm not going to get into that, but all sorts of different things that happened in her family, she continued to just say, hey, I'm going to be faithful. No matter what my husband does, no matter what the rest of my family does, I'm just going to be faithful to continue to sow the word into my kids. Well, my mom... When she got older, especially in college, she began to own the faith for herself. And she began to then 
learn what it meant to follow Jesus, truly then pass that on to my sister and I. And as I look back through the generations and, and I start thinking about all the situations and things they're going through, I realize, you know what? I don't know if I would have ever followed Jesus if it wasn't for my great-grandmother. The legacy that she set to my grandmother, my grandmother to my mom, my mom to me. But even as I look back over that, and I, th- I think, man, I'm so grateful for what they gave me. I think back to about 10, 15 years ago when my great-grandmother was getting sick. And who was by her bedside, caring for her, singing hymns to her? My grandmother. The seed that my great-grandmother planted in her started bearing fruit and started giving back to my, gran- my great-grandmother. And over the last few years, my own grandmother has had several health problems and challenges. And I've watched as my mom daily has been sowing the word back into her mom, encouraging her, giving back to the older generation. And I pray that I can do the same for my mom. And this is the beautiful picture of what God intends for families. Not perfect, but faithful. And I don't know where you are. Maybe you're the first in your family who's ever decided to follow Jesus. And you're much more like my great-grandmother. You had to figure it out. Blaze a new pail, new trail. Not, not perfect. She had no seminary degree. Nothing like that. But she was faithful. You may be like my grandmother or my mom. Or maybe you've had a long line of people who followed Jesus to you. But my question to all of us, and the thing that I want us all to consider today, is what does it look like for us to image Christ to those older than you? And what would it look like for you to image Christ to those under? Because this is the best gift we can give to our families. We can't control how our kids turn out, how our families turn out, but man, we can be faithful. That's the very best gift we can give to our families. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, man, you're a good dad. I don't know. I mean, seeing the example of a father who would give, come, be born among us to live and die for our sin, to rise again from the dead, to give us new life, to bring us, adopt us into your family. No matter how many times I've failed you, no matter how many times I've messed up, no matter how many I think I've probably given you. You continue to love, show grace, to call me your own, and to do your work of your spirit within my life. And Lord, as I think about my own family, my own family, those who, my parents, my grandparents, as I think about my own kids, Lord, I want to know and I want to grow in the ability to image you to them. And so, God, I pray for each of us that you'll give us a tangible way, even if it's just one, that we can honor those who came before us, standing on their shoulders, but also image you, our Heavenly Father, to those who come after us. Thank you for your kindness to us, and I pray that you will continue to speak to us by your Spirit. In Jesus' mighty name, and everybody said, Amen.